Well, welcome. Uh, if you are new here, we have been studying the book of Psalms uh, for the summer, and we are now uh, nearing the end of our study. Uh, we are looking at one of the most controversial Psalms uh, in the whole of uh, the Psalm, uh, the, the collection of Psalms. Uh, we are glad that you're here wherever you are in your journey of life or faith, whether you're uh, skeptical, curious, or a Christian. We're glad that you're here. We think that there's something here for all of us as we look at it. Your, uh, the scripture reading is on the back panel, Psalm 137 of your bulletin. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, you can turn there to Psalm 137 or not. Uh, you can read with the, along with us here at the back panel. I can already tell I'm rambling. <laughs> uh, now to help us with the reading of God's Word, Hannah. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 137 and Ephesians 6, verse 12. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing of the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the last few words of this psalm, if you uh, read them with us, probably have you wondering. If you are here and you are not yet a Christian, these are exactly the kinds of words that have you wary of Christianity bashing the heads of little ones against rocks. How can this be anything close to a proper ethic for any religion? Hear now the words of Christopher Hitchens, one of the great critics of Christianity based on his understanding of words like this. The Bible may, indeed does, contain a warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, slavery, for bride price, and for indiscriminate massacre. And we should not be bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human beings. It's passages like this that give credence to Hitchens' critique and makes us wonder. So before we dive into this passage, we're going to do something I've almost never done here from the pulpit. We're going to learn together how to interpret a passage like this because there are some other ones in the Old Testament that are equally on the face of it, emotionally scarring. I submit to you that we cannot begin to really understand this psalm until we make two shifts in the way we see this and other literature like this. The first paradigm shift we as readers need to do is we need to enter the story of the writer. That's pretty typical of what we need to do. We've heard about this. It's shifting context from our 21st century well-dressed, comfortable, peacetime existence to his, probably written around 584, 580 B.C., 
after watching the ravages of war go through his nation. That's the first shift, the context shift. The second shift, and particularly for Christians, but I think for all of us, the most important one is to enter into the history of God's people. What is called technically the redemptive historical shift. You have to read the psalm in light of all of the history of God's people, particularly in light of what happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. Let's do those two shifts now. Firstly, the context shift. Let's read this in context. I want you to enter the world of this writer. He almost surely lived in Jerusalem during the days when the Babylonian Empire with all of its military might came and destroyed the city. With, over mili with overwhelming military force, they conquered the last remnant of ancient Israel, Jerusalem. He was probably an actual eyewitness to the knocking down of the walls, and he saw their forces bash little Jewish children against rocks, possibly relatives, possibly his niece, possibly his daughter. He writes as a man who's a first, who has a first-person eyewitness view of real cruelty. And he watched historical rivals like the Edomites sit there and cheer while the Babylonian soldiers did that. Now I need to ask you if you'd seen your child have his head or her head bashed or your brother or your sister have their head bashed against a rock by soldiers, how would you feel? Well, actually you can't, can you? Most of us, indeed almost all of us, cannot tell because we've never experienced anything like this. Unless we're refugees from a war like the war with the ISIS regime, or we're refugees from some other part of the world, we have no context to understand this kind of emotion. We're Canadians. Unless we are indigenous First Nations people, we know nothing of this kind of ravaging. The closest thing we've experienced lately is the Jeffrey Epstein episode, where we began to put ourselves in the feet of those poor young teenage women ravaged and used by what appears to be a monster of a man who got away with it for decades. And finally, when justice finally got around to capturing and bringing him to justice, he took his life. And the social media and the media was filled with what? Anger. We should have made him suffer. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure they didn't say this, but if one of the victims or their family had said, I wish I'd been able to hold the rope to hang him, none of us would complain. All of us would get it. All of us in this room. Well, now we're entering just a little bit into the shoes of this person who's seen family and friends and maybe daughter with their heads bashed against a rock. So before we get too much onto that soapbox of moral superiority over how primitive this writing is, let's put ourselves in their shoes and see this for what it really is. It's not a primitive cry for vengeance. 
It's the ageless universal cry for justice. It's what we would have done if we were in their shoes because it's what we're doing and we're not even in the shoes of Jeffrey Epstein's victims. When we are confronted by moral evil and cruelty face to face, tell me that's what we would do. That's the context shift we need to do. But secondly, there's this shift in the history of God's people and what it means to be God's people that happens throughout the history of God working with Israel and particularly with the cross of Jesus. The psalmist here is writing this psalm from exile. Israel has been conquered. They are a subject nation now. The political intellectual elite, probably 20 or 30,000 of them, have been relocated, picked up by Babylon because that, they're the ones that would foment rebellion and moved. They've been moved to the outskirts of Babylon on the Kabar River or the Kabar Canal. Historians call them either one. They're there on the Kabal River. That's the river that's talked about in this psalm almost surely. They're in exile in physical Babylon. But note the progress of redemptive history. Peter, writing 580 now, about 600 years, 650 years later, in 1 Peter 2 says to Christians, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Well, they're not in Babylon. They're scattered throughout the Roman Empire. What are they exiles from? And where are they exiled to? Peter's comment raises those questions. Paul answers that specifically. He says, in our body, our tent, in this tent, 2 Corinthians 5, we all groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Paul says we are in exile, but exile is not Babylon. Exile is the whole earth. That's the redemptive historical shift. Everywhere on earth is actually exile. Well, if, <laughs> if none of the earth is home, where's home? Home is a heavenly dwelling with God, where God is, and where sin and evil and corruption and knocking kids' heads against a rock never happens. That's home. That's the teaching of the New Testament. Now, take a look at the verse in Ephesians chapter 6. If exile is the earth and home is with God, Who's our enemy? Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemies are not human, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemies are not Babylonians. They're demons. It's Satan and his servants, the angelic horde of fallen angels that are our true enemies, according to this. Who? Them. Well, then what about these cruel Babylonians that we're seeing in the psalm? You know, what then of people who deliberately are evil? What about people who deliberately persecute the church of Jesus and hate the gospel? What about people who slaughter Christians like ISIS? How about them? The New Testament calls them slaves, slaves of the real enemy, 
Their eyes are blinded by the God of this world. Ephesians 2, they follow the prince of the power of the air. Yes, they may do things against Jesus and against his gospel, but they do them as blinded servants of the real enemy. That's why Jesus will say to us, love your enemies. He meant love your human enemies because they're not the real enemy. They're worthy of our compassion because their enmity arises out of their being blinded, not seeing, being fooled. That's why Jesus would say on the cross about the people who have crucified him, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Therefore, the forms of Christianity that exist today that think the enemy of the church are the human beings that don't like the church doesn't understand the gospel in its fullness and hasn't made the shift. It hasn't seen the revealed clarity that the New Testament brings. Now, I've got to say something because I have a lot of friends in the United States who are Christians, most of whom, and I've talked to them, when they voted in the last presidential elected, voted for who they thought would be the best president. But some, a small group of my friends, but maybe a larger group, some Christians voted for the current president because they thought he was going to be their champion to fight the enemy. Some kind of unnamed progressive secular leaders that are hostile to Christianity. That's not the gospel. They're not the enemy. So now in the, the few minutes I've got left, with those two lenses, those two shifts, the context shift entering into their actual story, that this is actually a legitimate cry for justice, and the redemptive historical shift that the New Testament gives us, they're not the real enemy. This isn't our home. We are exiles. Let's read this psalm and try and pull some meaning out of it. This psalm is talking about how to sing the song of Jesus as an exile, how to live as a Christian in this world which is not your home. And it says at least three things. All scholars agree it's broken down into three sets of verses. Verses, well, almost all scholars. There are some that don't. One to three, remember. That's the key word throughout the song. It's, it's all over the place. Remember. You're in exile. Four to six, remember your true home. Seven to nine, ask God to remember justice. Remember you are in exile. Remember your true home. Ask God to remember justice. Remember you are in exile, verses one to three. By the waters of Babylon, we sat, where, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. Those are their musical instruments. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us the songs of Zion. So the psalmist describes sitting down in exile in Babylon by that river, the Kabar Canal almost surely, weeping with other Jewish people, lamenting the fact that he is in Babylon and not home, which he calls Zion here which almost surely means Israel in the good days when it was free. Now enter his moment for one more time. You're by a pleasant river. You're probably under trees. You brought your musical instruments to sing songs. You're actually enjoying your exile. Babylon was a great city. 
Babylon was meant to be a great city. In fact, Babylon meant their city to tempt you. When they brought the Israelites or any other conquered nation, what they did was they'd come up and they'd say, let's do a bargain. Exchange your gods for ours. Start to believe in our ethical system and we will let you progress. Culturally, economically, we will make you flourish here. All you got to do is give up your former identity as Israelites who believe in this Yahweh God. All you got to do. And so here's this scene he tells you. We're going down to the willows by the, and we're singing these songs. And it looks like they're kind of enjoying their time in exile. Until a couple native Babylonians come to their picnic or whatever and go, ha, 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 oh, nice songs. Sing a song of Israel. Pardon? Yeah, give us one of those songs you used to sing. You know, back when you were free. <laughs> it's mocking. It's taunting. So the picture here is of an intervention that triggers to them a reminder. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This place is not our home. We're actually in exile here. And they begin to weep. Now let's hear about it from our perspective. We're here in Toronto, 21st century, and it's pretty comfortable. And Toronto asks of us the same thing Babylon asked. It says, hey, just calm down about your Christianity. Just kind of exchange it for a more tolerant, multicultural version of what is true. Don't, don't go public with all the ethical implications of your Christianity, and we will let you flourish. The sky is the limit for you. You see? It's a call to remember you're in exile even when it's comfortable here. Where were we originally meant to live? Where's our Zion? With God. In perfection. As wonderful as Toronto is, if this satisfies your soul, your soul is a shrunken, pale imitation of what it should be. You should be wanting much deeper justice, much deeper gladness, much more continuous joy, much less evil and selfishness in this world. If you can't imagine that world and you don't long for it, something has shrunk your soul and your imagination because here is exactly where the gospel says, you think this is good? This is exile. This world is not your home. And I submit to you, for most of us, that's kind of hard. We live in one of the greatest cities and one of the greatest periods of history of peace for this city in all of human history. Most of us are doing pretty well financially or in our careers or in our academic careers. Do we weep at our exile? When was the last time this world broke your heart and made you weep? Or is this world with all of its opportunities, all of its temptations, has it got you wrapped around its finger? James said it well in James chapter 4. Adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Christians, we must be careful that we be not spiritual adulterers who love this world so much that we blunt our faith, co-opt our beliefs, sit there trying to get the best of both worlds. We need to learn with the psalmist to weep. 
even by the beautiful willows and the beautiful river at the exile where we are. Remind yourself, remember you're in exile. This world is not your home. Secondly, remember your true home. Verses 4 to 6, the psalmist says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? There's the question. That's the actual epicenter of the whole psalm. And then he says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not, there's the word, remember you. That's the central question. How shall we sing the Lord's song? The central answer, remember Jerusalem. Remember my home. Remember my identity. I'm Jewish. I believe in Yahweh. He's the one who sent us to Jerusalem. He's the one who promised to bless us there. He's the one who set up the temple there. We're to worship him. The Apostle Paul, making the redemptive historical shift for us, said to Christians, for many, this is in Philippians, Chapter 3, verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Well, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on the things of this earth. There it is. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. How do we sing? Firstly, Remember, we're exiles. Secondly, remember our true home. We tell people of Jerusalem, our home. We tell people about heaven. We tell people about God. We tell people about the beauty of the gospel because that's what the early church did. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested for telling people about Jesus. The church is tiny. It might be maybe a couple thousand people in the whole world. It's a billion people now. It's a little bigger. (laughs) It's a couple thousand people. It's centered in Jerusalem. It's all Jewish people. And the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities are clamping down on them. They they pull Peter and John in. They interrogate them. They threaten them. Don't spread this gospel. Don't sing the Lord's song now. And then they return and report to the early church. And what does the early church do? The early church says the Psalms are about us. They quote Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? And say, this raging at Psalm 2 is against your servant Jesus. And then, then this is how they pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to us, your servants, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand with, to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your servant Jesus. That is what it means to remember Jerusalem and sing the Lord's song in a formal in a foreign land. It means keep telling people about Jesus and the gospel despite hostility and threats. Allow the world to judge you, think you're a fool, despise you, disdain you. Allow the world to ignore us. I know it's really hard for me. I love respect. I have to be willing to give it up. And then ask God to do miracles, signs and wonders around us so that his song with his power might become beautiful in the ears of those who don't know him. That's what this psalm is a prayer to do for us. Let's sing the Lord's song in the middle of the exile of this earth and be not afraid. 
But the temptation in the first few verses is to forget your exile and just enjoy the pleasures of the place that you are. The temptation here is to silence the reality and the sharp edges of your faith. That's the temptation, to get too uncomfortable and go silent. Now, if you're a skeptic here, I, I know that this is one of the things that frustrates most skeptics. I know Hitchens, it drove him crazy. Christians are always trying to proselytize. I get it. He's right. We are. We're always going to tell you about Jesus. The essence of being a Christian is helping other people know about Jesus. But it's also a, bit, a little bit wrong, skeptics, because we're not actually trying to convert you. We're simply singing our song about Jesus and letting him and you do business. If you want to truly understand Christianity, you understand our job is to sing the song we're not responsible for how the, the audience responds to the song. We're simply responsible to sing it properly. This is Jesus in all of his beauty. And I'm going to do just that because that's really what the last stanza is all about. The last stanza, he asks God to remember his justice and to allow his justice to pour out on the Edomites and on the Babylonians. He asks for God to remember their enemies and to bring justice for that cruelty and that injustice. Remember, O Lord, verse 7, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. The psalmist is calling out the people of Edom. They were an ancient rival nation. Apparently, they were there cheering on the Babylonian forces when, wall, when they just destroyed the city. They tore down the wall. Keep going. Bring it down. And the psalmist says, remember them. Now let's put on our lens of redemptive history and remember that Babylon and Eden aren't the real enemy. They're the servants of the true one. They're following the prince of the power of the air. And so the psalmist cries out from God for justice to God. God, we're tired of him. Bind him. Stop him. Stop him from blinding the eyes of others. And God comes down centuries later and he fulfills the prayer of this song he comes down but it's not blessed is the one who bashes the heads of their little ones it's blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ he doesn't send someone to bash the heads of children he sends his own son to become a human and he allows Jesus to become the preeminent exile the one who came down from his home in heaven to show us where our true home was and what true exile was. Who came and said in the front of your bulletin, the quote, my kingdom is not of this world. And then Jesus was rejected, arrested, and he didn't have his head bashed against a rock. That would have been too easy. He was nailed to a cross so he could feel searing, agonizing, unimaginable pain while slowly his body lost the capacity to keep breathing. In hours of agonizing pain, a crucified person lives until their body can't hold them up to keep breathing. You see, on the cross, Jesus bore the infinite, howling judgment of God. His infinite, settled, long built-up anger against human sin, not just the Babylonians, but your sin and mine. 
everything wrong that we've done, every cruel thought that we've had. And God allowed that infinite anger and justice to be poured out upon his son. Now here's the secret of the gospel. The judgment of God does not go away or become less in the New Testament than in the Old. It's the same God. God threatens judgment in the Old Testament all the time, keeps relenting, keeps giving them more time. And in the New Testament, God actually finally pours out his judgment, except he pours it out on himself. When you ask this question, what did it take to satisfy God's judgment? You answer it by saying, he took his beloved son, his infinitely precious son, and he said, you infinitely worthy one, you will be the price I pay. I will pour out my judgment upon you. You will be the scapegoat for everybody else. The gospel doesn't diminish God's judgment. It reveals it for all of its infinite depth and beautiful, glorious mercy. Because the price it took to pay for your sin and mine is the infinite price of the infinitely worthy God who became man, Jesus Christ. Now here's the beauty and the warning of the gospel. If you reject the offer given to you of free forgiveness for everything wrong you've ever done, if you reject it, because it's offered to you in Jesus, then you will have something worse than the quick death of having your head smashed against a rock. That's Epstein-like in its speed. You will have all eternity without God. You will feel his displeasure. You will, you will have been thrown into the same place as the devil and the demons, and you will hang out with them in anguish for all eternity. You'll pay your own, you will pay for your own sins. You will have to own your own guilt. And because the price is infinite, you will have an infinite amount of time. But if you come to Jesus, the infinite wrath of God has been already poured out for you and already absorbed and paid for by Jesus. And then, if that's you, you can rest. Rest in grace. Because God, in his infinite love, has remembered justice by pouring it out on Jesus, mercy and justice kissed at the cross. Christian, remember your exile. Remember your exile and weep for your status. Remember your true home and sing of it while you're here. And remember God's justice in Jesus that brings you home. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. We love you for all that you've done for us, for all, all that you are for us, and we now ask you to come. I pray for those who are not yet Christians, that they would consider the great cost of Jesus for them, and that they would respond. I pray for those who are Christians, that we would remember anew that we are exiles here, and we're waiting to go home. But you, Jesus, have guaranteed our journey home. Help us to long for it and to wait for it and to sing the song of the glory of you while we're here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Okay, uh, I have a, a zillion questions here. I'm going to answer a zillion questions. Sorry, that's massive exaggeration. I have five questions here. I'll try. <laughs> I'll try and answer three or four. Why do we ask for forgiveness if Jesus has already paid for our sin? Uh, why do we need to continue to ask for forgiveness? Um, there, uh, there are there are two uh, there are two reasons. Uh, one. Every time you sin, you still offend God relationally. And because you're in an ongoing relationship, if you have a boyfriend, girlfriend, or friend, and you've done something wrong against them, it's natural to restore the relationship. So it's, in the, it's, it's part of the essence of normal human relationships to want to keep the relationship intimate and, 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 and good. And so God is worthy of having you confess every time. It's, it's so presumptuous of you to go, well, Jesus already forgave it, so I'm not actually going to ask you for forgiveness, even though I've really sinned against you. Like, what kind of love do you actually have for that God if that's the way you act? So that's one. It's just natural to proper human, proper relationships amongst persons. Secondly, why should you continue to ask for forgiveness? I've been a pastor now for I've been in ministry now for almost a quarter of a century. Nobody I know experiences the love and grace of God in a deep way if they have unconfessed sin against God and they're not willing to confess it. Everybody I know who has confessed to God regularly feels more deeply, more regularly, the love, the joy, and the grace of God. Do you want a love-infused, gratitude-infused, joy-infused life? <laughs> Just keep confessing and feeling and experiencing. God tends to sometimes withhold the experience of feeling his love to those who are unwilling to confess. That's a natural thing for someone to do. God does it. All right. Genuinely curious, have you ever done exegesis like this on a Sunday before? No. Why not do it every Sunday? Because I don't always need to make those hermeneutical explanations every Sunday. When I'm teaching from the New Testament, that shift is presumed. Shouldn't we all learn how to read every passage in the Bible? Yes. That's why we have classes. That's why we have discipleship group. That's why we have small group. Uh, we can't do... Here's a rule. Oh, sorry. They had about eight other questions. Uh, oh, sorry. The, the three of the five were this one. I got to go. Uh, so I'll answer your, your last one later. Um, how, oh, how, how can those who are not weeping help those who are? By weeping with them. Weep with them. Help them weep. Help the ones who are contented and not weeping to weep. That's what I just did. Some of you are way too content with your life. But uh, why don't we do this every week? The purpose of preaching is not to teach people, it's not instruction. The purpose of preaching is to confront you with Jesus Christ himself. I'm not supposed to preach about Christianity. I'm supposed to present Jesus to you every week so that you see him and feel him and experience him in your heart and in your soul. If I don't do that, I am guilty of not doing my job. A lot of times I fail to do that, but I always strive to do that. The purpose of preaching is not instruction. It's encountering Jesus and hopefully tasting his sweetness and being transformed. Ultimately, the purpose of preaching is transformation by multiple consistent encountering. That's why we don't do this every week. We need you to meet Jesus more than we need to teach you how to read every book of the Bible because it's Jesus who changes you.
and Jesus who delights you, not knowledge. So let's now go meet Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he helped make the redemptive historical shift completely and utterly clear by breaking a piece of bread that was meant in the Old Testament to signify the feeding of the Israelites in the desert by God in the Old Testament when they left Egypt. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Every person who believes in Jesus, from wherever they are, Jewish or not, this is now bread for you. Do this in memory of me. What he meant was, use this to remember that this bread which feeds you is my body which was broken for you on the cross. And then he held up a cup of wine and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And he asks us to, do, to drink this in memory of him, all of us. And so he took an Old Testament ritual that meant about the Jewish people's delivery from Egypt and turned it into the universal transhistorical truth that this world is not your home, sin is the problem, and I've come to remedy the sin so I can bring you home now. In light of that, let's feast on the grace of Christ. Let me pray. If you're not yet a Christian, there are prayers in the bulletin for you. We urge you to come and receive Jesus today. But if you are a Christian, we ask you to receive his grace through this meal. Father, come now and make this true spiritual food of forgiveness and redemption and glorious grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The, the bread is gluten-free and the wine is darker than the grape juice. The table is open.